book of Revelation, chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. Revelation, chapter 20, I'll begin reading in verse 7. We see the loosing of Satan, a kind of conflict at the end of human history. And then the banishing of Satan in hell forever. Revelation 20, beginning of verse 7. Excuse me. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, our desire is that we may not be confused, but that we may, as we come to your word, be granted that great gift that comes alone from your spirit, of understanding, that you would illumine our minds that they might be conformed to the pattern of righteousness, that we might see and confess not only that your word is truth, but what the truth is. And as we journey in our lives, in growing in righteousness and understanding, we ask that we might even this morning, in some fashion, progress. Not only in our understanding of the truth, but in our own sanctification. Make us a people devoted to love and good deeds for the glory of your name, that we might be active unto the building of your kingdom That is without end. We pray this in your name. Amen. I must admit, um, this text has preoccupied my thoughts (laughs) perhaps more than any other text in the book of Revelation. Uh, One of the things that seminary does not do for a man as he prepares for ministry... (laughs) is answer the majority of questions you have as you become a student of Scripture. Maybe you've experienced this. The more you read, the more you understand, I know little of God's Word. But that should not discourage us, but make us more insatiable in our appetite For the very thing that God promises to give wisdom and understanding. And just as the progress of our own understanding of scripture is a lifelong process. 
so too the coming of Christ is a millennial long process. Recently, I discovered a new a musical artist, a country musician. I never listened to country music growing up unless you consider John Denver and Gordon Lightfoot. That's more folk music. That's what I grew up listening into the car, in, in the car with my dad. Always tapes. And then one day this thing called a CD came out. It's amazing. And you have to buy all the music over again. I recently... In particular, my son, Henry, and I have been listening to a musician named Charles Wesley Goodwin. Um, And he has this song that was published in 2019. And the name of the song is Seneca Creek. And it's a ballad about a man who meets a woman down by the river. He falls deeply in love with her. He asks her to marry him, gives her a ring. But she doesn't care for the glory of a diamond ring. She just wants to live by the creek where they met. And so they build a home. Well, after he met her, he's called to war, the Korean War. And it's a song of aching. Because all he wants to do is get out of Korea, get back home, so that he can live with his wife by Seneca Creek. It's one of those songs that makes your heart ache. For him, though you've never met him, I don't know if he's a real person or not. But the themes of desiring to live a life of peace and this constant call to men to go to war and to what end? Vain ends oftentimes, especially of late. When will we know peace? And so your heart bleeds for this man. Just give him peace, Lord. I don't even know who he is. Because we see something of ourselves in our own experience. It is the common human experience. What we find in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, is the end of all war. And it comes when Christ returns. Three points that I want to make this morning. Christ coming puts an end to war. Secondly, the unleashing and destruction of Satan. And then thirdly, living in light of the last day. Let's look at the first point. Christ's coming puts an end to war. Now, I want us to hear that, and I want you to think not of his second coming only, but of his first and second comings. For of... Christ's kingdom, the scripture has much to say, even of the days in which we live now. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, we read, maybe even sing it or heard it sing in Handel's Messiah, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward ever and even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Remember the word increase, and there will be no end. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I want you to ask this question. Is there a section of the sea that isn't wet? It's a silly question. 
Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Listen to this. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now there will be many who will encourage interpretive scriptures like myself, we optimistic eschatologists, to not overrealize the eschaton. I'll let you study what that little dis means. I would say to those people, read Isaiah 9, Habakkuk 2, Isaiah 2. These are not descriptions of what will happen to the earth after Christ's second coming. But they are clearly realizations of the building of Christ's church between his first and second coming. The scriptures speak of the nature and extent of the reign of Christ once he comes and sets up his kingdom. And it is a kingdom that will never stop growing. When God curses Adam, he says that your work will be frustrated by sin. But when the second Adam comes... Is he under the same curse? Is the seed that is Christ dead in the ground raised from earth an impotent seed? Or is the church that is connected to Christ's own resurrection bound for glory? Now that does not mean, and what I am not saying, is that things will always look up. And that as soon as you join a church, things will always be good and there will only be victory. We have witnessed the ebbs and flows of the ministry and the testimony and the life of a local church. Solomon even says in the book of Ecclesiastes, there are seasons of joy and sorrow. And that is because we are between the first and second coming. But as it relates to the expansion of the kingdom of Christ... And the number of saints that live at any time in the history of the world, what we find is a measured uptick. Or shall we remember those disciples who could, at the resurrection of Christ, gather together in one room? I would like to see you try that now. What I am talking about is this, that of the trillions and trillions of people that will have lived by the end of human history and the eon of men on earth prior to Christ's second coming, 
If the grace of Christ is greater than the wickedness of men and the power and deception of Satan, then what we must come to as a conclusion, and rightfully so, is that heaven will be a greater city than all the hosts of hell. How is the question? Through the simple application of the divine order of redemption. What I mean is this, that Christ will, over time, by his Holy Spirit, fill the house of his Father with countless souls. And then, through his Spirit, he will teach them his law, and they will love what he loves. And that is the order itself. We are changed. We are taught how to live. Christ, by his spirit, teaches us to love what he loves. And even in Isaiah 9, you may ask yourself, how will it be that the church, that at this age in which we live now, seeming to have little effect in the machinations of the world, how will that happen? Well, Isaiah answers that question. The zeal of the people of God. In fact, when you join a church and you have those five questions, this is actually what we are endeavoring to drive to the heart of. There's five of them. You know them. I don't want you to think of them as theological formula merely or a way of binding yourself to a body, but as a way of testifying to the world, this is what I want. I would call you to look at your children (laughs) and to think of their immature, childlike zeal. And you ask them the question, why do you want to profess Christ? And you know what the answer is? I just do. (laughs) Because it's the right thing to do, and it's because I, it's what I want. And if you were to ask an adult the same question, you know what they would think? What do they want me to say? (laughs) What sounds best? Zeal for the Lord's house. How then does the kingdom never cease growing? Because the grace of God is greater than the deceiving power of Satan. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The power of the risen Christ is greater than all the powerful wicked men that could ever be amassed. In fact, what did the scriptures tell us? That the kingdoms of this earth are like a drop on the scales. Scales, well, we know what scales are used for now, and there's never good news when you step on a scale. But they used to be used for commerce. Weights that were standardized would be placed on one side against the thing that you are endeavoring to barter or trade. And you place one weight on the other and whatever your good is. And by doing so, you determine the rate or value of trade. As it relates not just to one king, the president of the United States, or some great foreign dictator, but every king that has ever lived that has ever wielded power, that has ever been to the church a bulwark that they could not understand how to get around. Nero, 
or the seven great emperors of Rome. Every single king, if they were to stand together on one of those massive industrial scales and you were to press the tear button, zero. No power whatsoever. In contrast to the power of Christ. And you ask, how will it happen? And the question is, through the ministry of word, prayer, and sacrament, by the Holy Spirit, there is none that can stand in the way. It is the same question. I get it that Abram and his wife asked, how in the world are we going to have a baby? Well, God will give you the baby. In the same way that we are impotent, that we are barren without the power of the Spirit, God will do the very thing that only He can do so that we, at the end of all human history, will look at all that God has done and say, what is the... We will for eternity never tire of singing of what God has done. That's how great it will be. You know the song, right? The song that whenever it comes on the radio, if you've heard it a thousand times, you crank it up, you roll down the windows, and you sing at the top of your lungs because it, it touches your heart. <laughs> and everybody else may be in the car going, well, I don't get it. That's the song of the Lamb. And what we have here in Revelation chapter 20, this is not introduction, by the way, <laughs> is a moment of clear victory. Because the last enemy that will remain after every other enemy of the church has been trampled. And when I say by the church, do not hear that our power is something of ourselves. But as Christ expresses his power through the church by the Holy Spirit, it isn't human effort and then Christ's effort at the end of history but Christ manifesting his power through the ministry of word, prayer, and sacrament, through humble, simple, faithful means. What we do every Sunday, yes, I know that if you live to 75, 52 Sundays for 75 years, can you, well, I could not count the sermons, 3,500 sermons, I'm somewhere, I think now around a thousand that I have preached. I don't actually know. <laughs> and I've forgotten 990 of the things that I have said. And when I open my notes and I look at them, I go, I, did I say that? But what God does over time, like the little mustard seed, like the leaven, children, you know, Springtime, you plant your garden. If you start it from seeds, you put the seed in the dirt and you walk out the next day and go, where is it? Well, it takes time. It must be watered. Fertilizer must be applied if it's not already in the soil. And it takes time. Abram and his wife waited 25 years before they finally had the kid. We've only been at it 13 years. But there will come a moment when our striving is finished 
in that moment of clear victory that is the last day of human history. Now, what is the significance and the meaning of this text in relationship not only to human history but this book? First, through the church, Christ will defeat and banish all demonic activity on earth. And this he will do by the means of grace empowered by the Spirit. Second, that once Christ has ruled under the ultimate destruction of death or through it, he will then hand the cosmos back to the Father. We see this in verse 24. And will rule the redeemed as their Savior and head. We see this, this is all, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ will rule. Thirdly, Christ reigns even now in the church to bring all enemies, the wicked angels and men, under his feet. This is what Luther remembered when he penned, the mighty fortress is our God. And there he was fighting against the tyranny of wicked men. And of the struggle, he says, one word shall fail him, him being the great enemy of the church. What is that word? Christ. And his word. So what can absolutely be said is that Christ will come at the end of time to destroy the one enemy that man cannot fully conquer. Only that which the firstborn can destroy. So let me read 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know 1 Corinthians 15. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man Christ also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. The end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. These are the events of that time. Second point. The unleashing And destruction of Satan. So far what I have said is this. Of the increase of his kingdom. And peace. That is the peace that comes to the gospel. And his kingdom. There shall be no end. Now as it relates to this passage. As you can imagine. And those of you who came to what's brewing. There are an enormous amount of opinions. About this particular chapter. In the book of Revelation. And they are vast and multitudinous. But here. And within this sort of vein of what I have already been teaching, expressing explicitly that I am of the opinion of an optimistic eschatology that Satan, in verses 4 through 6, has been bound in the abyss from 70 AD and will continue to be imprisoned Until the last day of history. Verse 7 reads. Now when the millennium. The thousand years have expired. When do they expire? 
well, whenever it says on the can, right? No, that's not what John means. What he means is when Christ has ordained, or the Father has ordained, rather, when that time has expired, Satan will be released from his prison, that is the abyss of which we read in verses 4 through 6, and he will amass to himself, in a sense, a great army to wage war against the saints. Now, those within the post-millennial, yes, this view that I hold, some of you think I'm crazy, I'm okay with that. We can work together. <laughs> Follow me into the breach. There is this dip, as it were, at the end of human history, a time of apostatizing where those nations that had been Christianized, right? The kingdom is growing, 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 growing. So who is there then to fight against the church and the saints if by the time of human history... The world has been evangelized. And so many would say, well, there is a certain number, a vast number of people who act in rebellion against God with Satan against and attack those who are faithful. Let me read a couple of quotes as it relates to this dip of apostasy. Because if the world is evangelized, right? And then there is a war, and Satan has a group of people that are allied with him, then it would follow that there would be those who leave the church and fight against the saints of God. Now, this is from Dr. Ned Stonehouse, a former professor uh, at Westminster Seminary, and at one point a member of the OPC. In truth... This losing of Satan signifies not that he enters upon a period of renewed activity, but that he with his followers are to be cast into the burning and judged. Rush Dooney, who many of you know of, we are told here, he writes, of this chapter, we are told only of an attempt. It fails, and God destroys forever the power of Satan. Satan, dear saints, is loosed so that he might go from the jailhouse to the place of his execution. That is what we find. He is loosed so that he might be judged. The question is, what is the quality of that day of his judgment and his last-ditch efforts to conquer the church, to bring an end, to bring misery and suffering to those who are in Christ Jesus. Despite all these views, <clears throat> here is what I contend. It will be brief. He will not be successful. And in fact, this conflict will not even really happen. There will be what looks like the potential for conflict. But in fact, there will be no time for Satan and for those who may even stand with him to do any kind of damage to the church at all. So let's look not only at Satan, but also the participants. Who else is with Satan described here? <clears throat> so Satan is loosed, verse 7, and will go out 
to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog were a king and the people of the king who in the book of Ezekiel sought to destroy the Israelites but were conquered and buried in the very land of Israel and not one of them remained. There is a theme of this throughout the scriptures. When God devotes to utter destruction those who stand against his anointed. Now I want to present two options. There are others. But we simply do not have time. Two options as it relates to who Gog and Magog are. Now there are some who would say that Gog and Magog are just current day versions of that ancient people who once warred against Israel. A type of Gog and Magog. Unbelieving peoples who had to apostatize in order to become such kinds of people. This is a commonly held view, not just among post-mill theologians, but others as well. Here is what I posit. Gog and Magog are not living nations or men that apostatized. Because the scripture is very clear that at this time, there will be no apostasy. Why? Because of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. When you read, there will be no end, do not read, there will be a momentary pause in the last day of history. No, there will be no end. And other texts just like Isaiah chapter 9. Gog and Magog were those who in the Old Testament died and were buried in the land. We read that here. To deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now in order to properly interpret Revelation 20... It is right that we not only look at other scriptures, but also what John has said throughout. And throughout the scriptures, there are four sections, including, well, not including this one, but four other sections or passages in which we read of those who were brought up. And all of that language, all of that is in relationship to demons let loose from the abyss. Gog and Magog are those unbelievers who are raised on the last day in the land in which they were buried along with the rest of those who will be judged by Christ and banished with Satan for all eternity. Where? That is in some ways also a difficult question. So we know who who are Gog and Magog. They are not nations living at the time of Christ's second coming who will apostatize. They are the resurrected judged who are already in the abyss. They are in Hades, rather. They are those of which we read here where the beast and the false prophet are. And they with Satan incense are let loose by Christ in order to be judged to wage war. 
But what will happen? Before a war ever commences, God will judge them in fire and will banish them to hell itself, to Gehenna. And so what do we see? On the last day of history, God will raise unbelievers, you might say, first, even as the tares are taken away before the righteous are judged, even in that parable we see the two men in the field, one is taken, the other remains. The dead who died apart from Christ will be raised, they will be judged, through Christ's righteous judgment that we find in verse 9. That is Christ's response to their rebellion. Satan will not be victorious. He will be humiliated and destroyed. And so the second coming of Christ comes in judgment with the wicked, and the second coming of Christ also comes with the full salvation of the saints. Now, why do we often have in our lives, even within the church, such pessimism as it relates to the eschaton? And it's this, I think, more than any other. We judge by feeble sense. We watch too much Fox News. I would say CNN, but I hope at least. Just kidding. And at this point, please not Fox News. We watch too much television and we read too little scripture. We spend more time outside of God's house hearing the word and the promises of God preached. And when I say we, I mean people. We do not take God's promises seriously and this is why. I just don't see how it's possible. Well, you're here, aren't you? Is not our salvation impossible? We who were once lost like sheep, leading each other astray, there was no help for us in the world except Christ came into the world to save sinners. In fact, what the gospel is, is exalting what is possible with God despite the impossibility with men. What we are called to do is to live in light of the promises of God, namely what we find in Revelation 20, and that is to live in light of the last day. Now, I have no idea how I got through six pages of notes that quickly. But we're at the last page. Bear with me. There is more here, and I anticipate further discussion on this topic. We are to live in light of the last day. How do we do that? Do not judge as men judge only with sight. Now, why does Christ not yet judge the tares? Because some of us came from tares. Some of us came from those who did not fear God. And there will be many, if Christ is to conquer the whole world, there will be many lost sheep of Israel who come from homes, Muslim homes, Jewish homes, Buddhist homes, Hindu homes, everywhere the light of the gospel has not yet been reached, there are those who will be born alive from those who are spiritually dead. 
And there will be no final judgment until all who are chosen by the Father and given to the Son are brought into the household of faith. This is correct. God will not leave his church to squander, to wait, right? Man, the bus should have come already. God, where are you? That's not what the Bible means when it says God tarries. When he says he tarries, he's waiting for the full harvest to come to fruit and to be brought in. Now, what does that mean for us? As it relates to Christian obedience and our zeal, It has less to do with keeping the letter of the law than it does hastening the day of Christ's second coming. And so when people talk about obedience, I want you to think of something more than gratitude as it relates to obedience. Gratitude is the heart. But many hands at work in the world Hastens the day of Christ's coming. Do you not wish to be one who in your faithfulness to the Lord takes days off that time that you have to wait, that others have to wait, that your children have to wait? Is this not the inheritance you wish to leave, a godly life? Not only that, to preserve, to preserve as we live in light of that day, Covenant faithfulness. This church is not for you and your children alone. It is for those who will come later. And for a time, we are stewards. We tend this public garden. We labor faithfully so that Christ might give to those generations that are to come success in the endeavor. God has not yet unleashed Satan. He has not yet brought judgment. He has not yet ended this eon of human history. And until he does, he will uphold, he will bless, he will strengthen the work of the gospel until he comes again. And so we ought not fear Satan. And if Satan is greater than any man, why do we fear men? Why do we live in light? Of the power wielded wickedly by wicked men. And not only that, maybe you've seen the calendars. You'll often see it in a film when there is a montage, right? The wedding day. And you put a big X right on that date. I know it's coming. Here it is. So what do you do? You plan everything in light of that day. You've got the caterer, the flowers. The, the place, the venue, you, you've got to, you know, work out all of those things you think you need to have prepped and ready to go until that day. And you live in light of that day. Now, we don't have the ability to mark on any calendar the big X, right? But what we know is this. We know exactly what the last day will actually look like. We know exactly how it will go. At least, I'm pretty confident I But I do know this, whether there is a time of apostasy, there is actually no war. There's no power. It's been stripped. And as we wake up every day, 
And we think the last day. Live for Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. Live for that day. It will make every day of your life, even if you do not live to that day, mean something. Seek Christ because of this day. Not only do you not wish to be those who are cast into outer darkness forever, tormented day and night forever and ever, but as those who even now call upon the name of Christ, we live because we know what will happen when Christ comes again. May we be a people then who eat, who drink, who live, who make every decision not in line and not in response to the bottom line. The, the wealth and success of this world. Lay those things aside, Paul says in Hebrews. Lay off every hindrance and live for the last day. For the glory of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. Let's pray, Lord.